welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner, and I'm joined by Claire. <laughs> Go ahead, Claire. Hi, everybody. I'm Claire Kaplan. And as we always do, um, I'd like to remind our listeners that sometimes the discussions in the podcast can be difficult to hear, especially for survivors of trauma. So we encourage all of you to care for your safety and your well-being. Reach out for emotional support from family or friends, a counselor if you have one, or a hotline. And additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll share that address at the end of the podcast. Thank you so much, Claire. And we are so excited to um, in, uh, welcome Stephanie Olson. Um, Stephanie, I think our listeners would love to learn a lot more about you. Could you share a little bit about your bio and background? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, So I am a mom. I am a wife. I've got three amazing kids that are taller than me. And uh, I am the CEO of a great nonprofit called the Set Me Free Project and a survivor of domestic and sexual violence, a recovering alcoholic, and um, just a lot that has gone on. So that is that is who I am. Thank you so much, Stephanie. And, you know, I think for our listeners, thank you for sharing about your mother motherhood um, with three. And, you know, it's my favorite part of me. Yes. <laughs> well, I think, you know, those, uh, all three of us, as she pronouns on this um, podcast, are mothers as well. And I think it's always the, um, greatest joy and greatest challenge sometimes. Yes, for <laughs> um, sure. You, for sure. We we think it's hard to get through our abuse and assaults. And then we have children and we're mm. like, oh my gosh, now I'm getting re-traumatized. <laughs> I'm That's into- right. That's right. <laughs> we don't want to lead them through trauma, right? <laughs> right. We, and, and we sit with them when we um, hear or see them, you know, go through the times and, and ages in which we were also, you know, with fear factors and trepidation and abuse. So thank you so much, Stephanie. And just um, a last question. I think you're in the U.S. Yes. Some of our, um, yes, yeah, so you're here in the U.S. And are you east, north, south, west? I am smack Where dab in the center of the states. I am in Nebraska. Nice. Yep, Perfect. Love it. I've, I've spoken in Nebraska a few times, Omaha. Yep, that's where I am. Um, and then... Yeah, so lovely. Well, welcome, welcome. Um, so we always start out kind of with our survivorship journey. And if you could, you referenced, you know, the domestic abuse. Um, if you'd like to start before that, I don't know what, you know, how you got in that moment or, or what happened, but that would be really helpful. You bet. You know, I always start with I was born, which scares people a little bit. I promise I won't go too long. But I was born to an extremely abusive father and a very um, young, amazing, but insecure mom. And they were, um, you know, it, it was 1969. And I had my, my biological father is black, my mom is white. And so not only was I born um, out of wedlock, 
and then they got married, but I was biracial. And so already I was born into this world of craziness. And then my biological father was abusive, violently abusive. And that really set up the trajectory for my life. My mom uh, bravely escaped from that relationship when I was only a year old. And um, we moved in with my grandparents and I wound up having a really um, good life. She she met and married my dad, um, who adopted me when I was six years old. But that was that trauma that happens in that first five years of life is so critical. And sometimes we forget how important that is and how that can set us up for future trauma. And so that's really where it began for me. Um, A lot of stuff, you know, throughout. But when I started to date, I started to look for all of the wrong things. Um, By that point, I was drinking uh, regularly and I was um, drinking unhealthily lot of drug and alcohol misuse. And so I went through my high school years, my college years, with a lot of um, scary situations, was um, raped several times um, throughout those experiences, some by, um, you know, a quote unquote, loving boyfriend. And um, when I was in my early 20s, after a drunken year, I married my first husband. I'm thinking about what it means to witness. I I have a couple parts of your story I want to go back to before we get to where you left off with with a partner. You know, if we start thinking about you're a teenager drinking heavily and numbing out your world, it was numbing out, but it. do you think it was triggered by the physical abuse of your father? Or where did the feeling, I need to numb something out, this is really painful, where was the first moment you ever sent? And, and was it when you were, did you start seeing that when you were six, when you were eight? You said- That is a great question. Yeah. You know, I always wanted to be- daddy's little girl. That was something that was really important to me because, and I'm sure the abandonment of my biological father. Now, I neglected to say that my biological father never did anything after the time that my mom escaped from that relationship. And so I have no true recollection of my biological father, but he never did anything to find me no birthday cards, no phone calls. And so when when you see, gosh, my own father doesn't think I'm worth a phone call, I must not be worthy. And if my own father doesn't love me, I must not be very lovable. And all of those lies that you start to tell yourself at such a young age were um, going on quite, quite a bit. Yeah. I think that's yeah. so well put, Stephanie. I think the, then we, we're so young and we only know so many, I think, variables and ways we receive emotional support. When we're so little, 
the only source of emotional support is usually our parents. And you said that more, I, I, I hope all of our listeners heard what you, you said, because so many of them, Stephanie, say the same thing. They, they felt like less than worthy and they were just children, if not even younger, and they already felt abandoned emotionally. And so thank you. And that them. gets imprinted in our heart at a very young age. Yeah. Uh, like stamped in and it's so hard to overcome that because I think we live in a culture. I, I remember in my anthropology classes, Stephanie, I was like, wow, look at these communities where there's like 10 mothers and fathers are like, it's way different. But in our culture here in the U.S., we have this like, you don't, you're, you, you're lacking something if you don't have this quintessential mother, father, he, she, kids. And I, I think we're trying to overcome it, but there's still something to what you're saying. And I think that, that I think too, that, that um, you, you talked about feeling unworthy. I think that hole that's left there, that, that longing for something um, translates into these other issues that you talked about. I'm curious, how old were you when you started drinking? Yeah, so I was actually 16 when I started really drinking. But interestingly enough, my grandparents every day at four o'clock sharp would have a Manhattan every day. And every day I went over to them to get that maraschino cherry soaking in that Manhattan. Now, it was good stuff. It tasted good. Now, I could have gotten the maraschino cherry out of the fridge, but no, mm-mm, that's not the one I wanted. I wanted the one soaking in the booze. Exactly. And when I started drinking, I looked at drinking differently than my friends did. There was always a longing, okay, the next drunk, the next drunk. And my very first drinking experience I blacked out. Wow. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah. So I believe for sure that I was predestined, you know, that to alcoholism. Now, years later, and this was just probably three years ago, I was doing the whole ancestry thing and I found my biological father's um, death certificate and he died of alcoholism. So I definitely think there's a lot of generational stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not to confuse our listeners, but we just want to loop back. So now we have your biological dad leaving at one. Um, we, but your mom did have another partner in between the one you referenced a bit. So when it's, it's, yes, my, so when my mom, when I was six, my mom met and married who I refer to as my dad, who, um, and I always say, you know, when it comes to, um, parents and how they, I always say any male can be a father, but it does take a special 
man to be a dad. And there really is um, something very, very special about um, giving that of yourself. And so I refer to um, the man that adopted me when I was six, my dad. And um, he passed four years ago. Amazing man. Um, Wonderful things. Wonderful. He did wonderful things for me. Um, But human, you know, here he was um, in his early 30s. And he has an Insta family and a biracial child. And in the 70s, that in and of itself was a very difficult thing. And so, you know, certainly traumatic situations um, ensued through that, but he was a good guy. Actually, Stephanie, I have another question. I'm not sure if we lost Claire, but about the, um, we have a whole diverse group of listeners and guests, Stephanie, and I wanted to think about the compounded problem of being biracial. Was this still in Nebraska or were you elsewhere at that point? I was in the Chicago area. Oh, you were outside of Chicago. Um, in the north, south, east, west side? Um, um, we lived in suburbs of Chicago. So, um, and, and we kind of moved around um, in more of the northern portion of the area. Um, and then we moved to Colorado and then we moved to Nebraska. So, um, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I think that one thing I'd like to just explore, because I know this is something you speak about and your podcast also features your own, is diversity and inclusivity. And I, I we've had so many, you know, divergent um, backgrounds on our podcast. And I, I, yes, it's really important. And acknowledging the additional trauma and challenge that comes from being a survivor and how to, maybe we could start with talking about how you've transitioned with, I don't want to say like um, outing or voicing or naming your identities are multiple, but how much more difficult was it, Stephanie, to say, I'm also a survivor of this. Like, I'll, I'll just give this one example and maybe this will give you fuel for fire. I, I am a white woman. I can't change my skin color and I have all the privilege it comes from. And I remember so many years ago, you know, I've been doing this work for 30 years and some of the women, um, said, I will not disclose what happened to me for two reasons. One, we can't put another man of color in bars. And two is I can't afford to lose the man who abuses me. And I love your reactions to both of those statements. You know, there's, there's two different, right? There's two different parts of that. But you know, take one or the other, whichever one you'd like. But, you know, I want to keep your history because our listeners are all ages and stages. We have, we have high school, we have college, but I think each one needs to hear how we felt at different ages and stages based on some of our identities and our trepidations. Like you had certain concerns. I had certain concerns. They're different but they're related. 
But I think, you know, helping others navigate through them in sitting in your shoes is what they would love to hear. And, and so I identified two. Remember, I said, like, I don't want to put another man of color in jail. And then I can't afford to not have the man who abuses me. Or I can't afford, like, he's my baby mama. He's like that, right? There's So there's money and there's also racism. So I'd love you to speak through that those two on how you felt as a 16-year-old, a 20-year-old, and then later as a mom, too. I, whatever you want to share. So that's, that is fascinating. Um, well, he, here's what I will say to that that is very interesting. Um, one of the things that I think set me up for failure with my biological father or lack thereof was I, I kind of became that cliche looking for love in all the wrong places. I was just desperate for acceptance. I was desperate for attention when I was in seventh grade, I was in Omaha, or I'm sorry, I was in Lincoln in Nebraska. Now, Nebraska is is pretty, pretty white overall. And um, so I was an outcast in my school, in my neighborhood, and really had problems in embracing that part of me sometimes because I was attacked for it so brutally in um, some areas of my life. And so that was a huge challenge. Well, let's do this, Stephanie. I think we should definitely dig in a little bit through the assaults you experienced in high school and then um, where you went from there. If you could just, if you're willing to share a little bit more about that, and especially because we know um, so many of our listeners are using alcohol too, and then getting assaulted when, you know, you already said, like, I was blacked out drunk, and we've had so many of our listeners say that was my experience as well, so. Well, that's the, that's the interesting, that's the interesting part, because, and I think part of what my early days set me up for was exactly what you were saying, Claire. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't have adversity, I think breeds um, amazing positive things in the way of leadership. If sometimes you start with that, that confidence that I did not have. And so I kind of um, sunk into myself, but then used, anything I had to try and find acceptance, um, which was not, uh, not always the healthiest thing. And so the, the first time that I was assaulted was by my boyfriend. And um, he, I said, no, happened anyway. And what what is amazing to me, and I think this is really important for your listeners, it wasn't until, and there were several afterwards, at least three afterwards in high school and college. It wasn't until I was an adult in this work a couple of years ago that I realized I was raped because I had always told myself 
it was my fault. And I think that's really important because so often when we are victimized like that, we don't self-identify as whatever that might be because we are looking at it through very hurt and, um, you know, just not the right, not wearing the right shades to see what this really is. Um, I have two quick questions, Steph. <laughs> Stephanie. Yeah. The part where you said I lacked self-confidence. Can I just dig in on that? Was I think so many of our listeners say they lacked self-confidence because they weren't thin enough. They weren't wide enough. They couldn't do cartwheels. They couldn't, they weren't, you know, what would you say your, you know, cohort, your self-confidence lack was? I didn't feel loved enough or judged as a woman. How did you feel that expression of lack of self-confidence? So I just didn't feel I had value. Um, I didn't feel that any part of me was worthy of love that was worthy of, um, and I was, I was angry. There was a big part of me that was very angry because I didn't have what all my other friends had at the time, or I didn't have, I, I wanted this as daddy's little girl. I wanted a father, but I didn't have that. And that angered me. And, um, and there were a lot of control issues around that time. I developed, you know, you mentioned I'm not thin enough. I developed um, eating disorders very early on in middle school. And so just, I, I was grabbing anything to have control, although I didn't realize that's what it was, but I just wanted, I wanted to, to have control. I wanted to numb the pain. I wanted to feel loved and accepted. And none of that was going well at the time. So I think that that is, um, and so that confidence piece, um, that's hard when you don't recognize that you have an incredible value that no one can change just because you are you. I have to ask, because it sounds like your mom was really supportive and your family was very supportive. And as a parent of a young woman who is going through many similar things, I, I, despite my knowledge and despite everything, it still happened. And I wonder, have you discussed this with your mom? And does she talk about feeling like I failed you as a mother, blah, 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 you know, where she feels like she didn't for whatever reason, what she didn't feel that she gave you what you needed to grow up to be, you know, you, you were struggling and all this. I, I, this is such a hard thing as a parent, as a, of a struggling child that, um, really deep down in the end, there was probably nothing, for example, that I could do. Most parents are doing the best they can to try to raise their, their kids right, but still things happen. You are so right. Mm-hmm. Did your mom struggle with that? You know, when I was in my early 30s, um, because the reality was early on, my mom was 20 years old when um, she got married to my biological father. Um, 
early on in my childhood, she was not around. She was out. She was dating. She was doing her, you know, 20 year old thing. And, and, and fortunately, I had my grandparents to be a part of my life. But when my mom, when I was in my early 30s, had a little, um, I had my little girl, she took me out to lunch and said, I am so sorry for my part in your pain. And that was the most healing thing that she could have done. Now she was, she, she, and we are so close and she has always been there, but, um, she did take ownership for, for her role. And, um, and I think that's a really important piece of that. Although what you are so right. There are things, there were things she could have done that she didn't know she could have done. You know, finally, when I was, and these are little things that are so important. Finally, when I was in middle school, she took me to a black hairstylist because I was trying to, you know, I wanted my hair done like all my friends went to the posh salon and I had five stylists. I kid you not. I had five stylists around me just touching my hair. Oh, come here. Look at her hair. Oh my gosh. Feel her hair. I'm in seventh grade. Talk about trauma, right? But so my mom did what she knew to do to help me through those things. And, um, and so that is, she's an, she's an amazing woman and she came out of massive trauma, you know? So I have so much admiration for my mom. It's wonderful. I think we should, then I'm trying to think, um, chronological, uh, next the abuse, but how did you go from high school college, if we did college, and then partner. Yeah, well, we, I went through high school, and college and partner drunk. Um, (laughs) 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 Um, And because of that, in part or not, I, um, I did not choose well. Uh, I married a drug dealer, which I would just tell everybody not the best route to take. I'm just saying, not the best yeah. route to take. So married a drug dealer um, who wound up being very abusive. And um, the abuse was less physical and more emotional and verbal. And what I would say about that, I think sometimes we put... Um, labels on domestic violence or sexual violence. And, you know, well, if, if they're not physically abusing me, it's okay. Abuse is abuse is abuse. And, um, and sometimes that emotional verbal abuse, the scars, because they're not seen sometimes can be so much deeper and they're harder to see. So that support is harder to get. And, um, it was a really rough marriage. Um, we, um, were married two years and I escaped from that marriage, but I didn't do it quite as gracefully as my mom. I wound up just as an exhausted person. Um, I wound up taking a bunch of pills and a whiskey chaser and ended up in the um, suicide ward in a hospital for a week. And that was one of the best things that could have happened to me. Oh my goodness, Stephanie, that's so powerful. Um, 
I think our listeners, some of us, some of them and our guests have also talked about being in hospital wards for suicide attempts. And I think if you could, you're so helpful in giving us so much information, you know, how, if we're sitting there, I'm just going to push pause and try to imagine being you in that moment. And I may get it all wrong, but I was thinking, okay, I've tried to leave this abusive partner. I'm now in that hospital. I, I don't yet know if you told us you have children at that point, but you knew. Okay. Okay. So I'm just, I'm also thinking so many of us, when we are so alone and so scared, we find any way out of the hell in which we, and we don't know, but sometimes the hospital feels safer than anywhere else we've ever been. It, it, it's like, okay, someone's going to look after me. I I don't care about the label I'm going to get. I just want to be safe and fed. I don't want to. Yeah, it was, it was safe. I, um, you know, interestingly enough, when I was young, baby, young, I was in and out and, and baby, I remember this. I was in and out of the hospital for bronchitis. I was there every two years and I loved the hospital, weirdly enough, because I was safe. I was protected. They loved me. I was, you know, I was a cute kid and they took care of me. And I think some of that really kind of carried over because when I was hospitalized, I did feel safe. I felt taken care of. And although my my husband at the time, my ex, um, would come to the hospital and he was there, there was protection. And so that was a really good thing. And I was also then at that time going to therapy or they were coming in three times a week, which I'm a huge fan of therapy. I think it's it's a positive, positive thing, but that helped me. And so it was a turning point um, in my life. Not a, not a complete changer, but definitely a turning point. May I just ask one clarifying question? Yes. When your, abuser, when your ex would come there, uh, by choice or not by choice, this was your abuser by this point, and you would come to the hospital, True. I'm, I'm just crying. So you would just come and how I think a lot of people listening don't know, Stephanie, how that works. You can, you, you can say, I don't want this visitor, right? You can, but you have to realize that you don't want this visitor. And I wasn't at that point. Yes. And I, I wasn't at the point where I wanted to necessarily leave him. I just wanted to be out of what I was experiencing. And I don't think even at that time I had equated it. And I know this is going to sound weird, but it's, it's about that self-identifying piece. I don't even know if I equated it to him at this point. And yet I, so, so this is my husband. He loves me. I love him, right? You're going to come visit me. And, and it was, it was actually a therapist who said to me, 
I want to ask you a question. And of course, we had talked about all of some of the you know details, but he said, I want to ask you a question. When you look at your life and you're, you're elderly and you're sitting in your rocking chair and you're looking at your grandkids, is he next to you? And I thought about that and I know, and I said, he's not. And that's, it, it, it took, now here's something else to know. And, and this is what I, it's as hard as it is to tell people about your abuse, to get support, to get help. That is so important. And I had always had this mindset, whatever you do, don't tell people that you're fighting with your partner because you're going to get back together and they're going to hate that person, right? So that was my mindset. So all of the time, all the whole time I was being abused, I said nothing, and didn't want to tell anybody. And he was calling my parents saying, Stephanie's crazy. We need to get Stephanie help. There are some real problems. So my parents had this complete, um, not accurate view of what was happening going on. Yeah. How did you rest your soul? Because so many of our listeners are still pre- sober, pre-owning their survivorship? That's my first question. And then my second is, what have you done since and how? So I would say that's a twofold question because um, I I still, it's a, it, here's what I will say. It's a consistent journey to do that. I don't, I don't think that's a definitive thing either for me. Um, and, and so I had to learn tools and, you know, I mentioned my faith, my faith is very important to me. So there are things that, you know, you know, prayer and things like that, that I do to just rest my soul. Um, but, but. And may I just ask about that part? It, you know, I was, I was thinking, you know, Stephanie, when we rest our soul, here's what I do. I literally put my heart, um, my hand on my heart chakra and my my other hand on my um, belly chakra. And I just kind of meditate and hold still. And I praise, you know, higher beings. And I'm thankful what does that mean for you? Yes, that so um, I, I do that with with my faith, so prayer and gratitude and and being thankful. But I also rest my soul by going for a walk. I rest my soul by taking a nap or reading. I mean, there are so, and I think that goes back to that self care piece, really taking care of yourself. Because doing that numbing is the exact opposite of that. And yeah, and so I think there are so many ways to really um, do that. But here's what I would say. And sometimes I think people think, okay, wait, I must be broken 
because you'll hear people say all the time, oh my gosh, it was an, I, like I, I never wanted to drink alcohol again. I never wanted to do drug again. I was just, it was amazing. That never happened for me. And there are days, even still, and I've been 20 years sober, there are days that even today I still, okay, all of a sudden, a drink sounds exactly what I need. Or I used to be a smoker. I used to smoke two packs a day and I'll still have smoking dreams. You know, I mean, it's stuff like that. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. When you not to smoke. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so I think that it's important to, to know that it's still a journey and, um, and don't, don't ever beat yourself up if all of a sudden you have a craving or you're like, ah, oh, I, you know, I missed this or whatever it may be. It's going to those self-care places and going back to that and just reminding yourself, nope, I'm good. This is where I need to be. This is what's healthy. This is what... And I think that is because I always felt a little broken. Like, why didn't I have like, I would, I was in meetings. I would, there's this one woman who drove me crazy at every meeting she would say, and I never had the taste for drink again. And I'm like, shut up. (laughs) Good for you. She, and God bless her. Okay, good. I mean, that, yeah, good for you. And that is great. And, and she meant it. I mean, that was her and that was her experience and that was her journey. And that's awesome. Wasn't mine. And so recognizing that your journey is going to look different than everybody else's journey because you're unique. You're amazing. You have value. And, um, that's a really important thing to remember. So, So my soul, what I'm saying is my soul gets restless still. And so I have to go back to those things um, consistently that just take me back to where I know, okay, nope, this is right. This is where I do have value. I do have worth. And I am worthy of being loved. And I think those are important. So moving to today. Yes, yeah, May I just ask for the transition? So we've gone from you and everyone wants to know like age of transition, how many kids and how you, yep. When, when you went there. So, okay. So, um, so I, I quit drinking in 2002 when my daughter was um, 18. And then we wound up after losing some babies and having a really difficult time there, we wound up having two more kiddos. I've got, so my oldest daughter is uh, 21, lives in New York. My um, middle daughter just graduated from high school. And my little baby boy, who is a lot taller than me, um, is 16 and fabulous. And so um, I've got amazing, an amazing family, amazing support system. And I think that's part of what really catapulted me um, throughout the years to really want to help other. I love, I'm in love with women. I think I love to see, and I think that's just you know, where I kind of just land because that's my, 
my mindset, but so many women are so hard on themselves and so, um, you know, have to do it all. And I have to be this, and, and actually youth are the same way. I adore youth. Um, and they're the same way. And so I really wanted to help and teach and see people recognize their value in life. How do you do that though? How, for let's say you, you have someone's standing before you who feels utterly worthless and maybe have felt worthless their entire lives, um, really have a hole and they can't fill it. How do you help that person find that? It, it, that also can be a journey. Um, but I think it's just stating, do you know, so many people haven't even heard that they have value and just letting them know you are amazing because you're you, because you were born, you know, with human dignity, you have worth. And that's just the beginning of a conversation. That's the planting of a seed. When, when we do our curriculum for, for human trafficking, we have a curriculum from first kindergarten through college age for youth and then adults of every facet of the community. The foundation of every piece of our curriculum not surprising since I I wrote it, is you have value. You have worth and you have human dignity and no one can change that. That's so important to know and that's the beginning of everything. We had a, a little kiddo who was listening to one of our educators who came up to them in the middle um, after the, the presentation and said, no one has ever told me I have value. I have never heard that. Eighth grade. Eighth grade. And so we started talking to him and um, turned out he was um, being sexually abused in his home. He was a victim of severe abuse all through his life. So, of course, we had to report it. And um, and so normally when that happens, we don't hear what happens because it's confidential. Well, he emailed us. And said, hey, I just want to let you know, I did get taken out of my home and that was scary. But for the first time in my life, I am safe. And I want to thank you because you are the reason. That's why you do. I mean, and then he emailed us a month later and said, hey, it's my birthday. And I'm having a birthday because of you. And I I think sometimes it's as simple as telling somebody because they've never heard it and then helping them walk along that journey to or giving them resources or tools. This is what you can do to find out who you really are or, um, you know, how you can... um, take that and catapult your life to whatever you want it to be. Uh, I, it was amazing. I may want to roll us out. Oh my gosh, Stephanie, we could spend hours with you. We roll out with, um, I'm honored. Thank you so much. I think we want to allow our listeners to hear about your next journey with the podcast. And then Claire closes home. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, 
I love to speak on all of these topics, and my podcast is called Resilience in Life and Leadership, and we talk about all of this kind of stuff, depending on um, who our who our guests are, but I love to interview people with, with amazing stories and amazing lives, and so you can find all of that and me on stephanieolson.com, and um, there is all of the information about how to um, find me for speaking or listen to the podcast or anything that you might want to get involved with, including my nonprofit. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's been truly an amazing journey to talk with you. Well, well, again, we're so grateful Stephanie you joined us and we're grateful to all of our listeners who um, joined us as well during this podcast. Um, if you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit takebackthenight.org for a, a, that list of resources and also how to reach our legal support hotline. You can also help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. This expands our listener base and helps us in a lot of ways. Please consider posting it on your social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by an amazing group of volunteers. So thank you to all of them. And thank you listeners again for being present today. And always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving.